This is First Contact, stories of the call center. Get ready to dial into the exciting world of call centers with First Contact, stories of the call center podcast. Join us as we share stories from industry leaders, explore the latest trends and technologies, and tackle the challenges and triumphs of the contact center landscape. Fasten your seatbelt for a high-energy journey brought to you by Nobel Biz, the one-stop shop for all your call center needs, both in software and service. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of First Contact Stories of the Call Center. Today we're joined by a renowned figure in the contact center space, Dr. Wei Wu Curtis. Now look, background is operations geek, disruptor, advocate for DEI. She's also the recipient of numerous awards, including the Silver Globe Award for Executive Excellence. Now, with over two decades of experience in leading business-to-business and business-to-consumer contact centers across a range of industries, and 65 countries, Dr. Wei is a powerhouse of knowledge and innovation. Now, look, we're very excited to have her and welcome her to the show. Thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you for having me, Kristen. Super excited to have you on. Thanks so much for joining. Now, look, one of the background of the show is to really understand how your journey got you into the contact centers. I'd love to be able to share that story. Can you give us some insight into that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think to go back to my college days, you know, when I was in school full time, I, I needed a part time job. And so I went to this recruitment firm and they got me a job at this large call center. And way back when, when they had alphanumeric pagers, you'd have to call in call center and say, hey, have Bill call me at this number. Um, training was less than a day. And then I was kind of thrown on the floors and it wasn't uncommon to take 300 calls a day. And I think I lasted about four months. You know, I'm just like, what is this place? I never, I never met my supervisor. Um, it just seemed chaotic. They're always asking for people to stay over. And so I, I couldn't wait to run away from that place. And then fast forward, I had an opportunity to, to get into management at somewhere else. And then they called me back with a, a different call center to go back as a supervisor this time. So I thought that was incredibly intriguing to now go back as a leader into the contact center and figure out how do you effectively manage and lead people in an environment where they're all kind of tethered to the phones? So when I went and jumped back into call centers, I've been there ever since. Well, it's interesting that it seems like the experience in the beginning was a little, like you said, chaotic. There was this disconnect from the business side of it, you know, the leadership. And in that four months, I'm sure it felt like a lot of time had passed. You probably aged as well. You're like, gosh, so much has gone on in this four months. But at the same time, Leaving that, it didn't sound like it was an extremely positive experience where you're like, I'm going to get back in the contact center space tomorrow. So what made you outside of the fact that now you could go back in, you know, as a higher position or was that enough for you to go back and go, all right, I'm going to go jump in the cold water? Yeah, I would say, you know, being in a leadership position, that was enough. I mean, I, I always like a good challenge and it's kind of like, so, you know, solving a puzzle. And I, I don't know if people necessarily had solved the puzzle yet. And so I think that that for me professionally was a really good challenge. So let's talk about where you are today, right? So let's, you, you pivoted to that, that, that supervisory role and you are now as a leader. Let's try to talk about then how did they, that transition and how did you stay in this space? How did you not get burnt out and go like, gosh, this isn't for me. What happened in the transition to that leadership 
supervisory role that was so different that got you to where you are today versus when you were just hitting the phone? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I, you know, when I reflect back, I'm like, gosh, I don't know why I stayed for so long. Because if you if you look at kind of it outwardly, right, it's it's horribly stressful. Not not every two days are ever the same. People are always constantly yelling at you, you know, uh, and you're always constantly getting criticized. But I I think it's part of my competitiveness is how do you how do you excel and how do you win in this space? And so I really wanted to kind of prove to myself that I can effectively lead and manage people. And then as they gain more and more successes, it just made me a bit more hungry to continue to move up the food chain and be in higher level positions. So then I'd have greater scope and greater empowerment to make decisions that would really fundamentally change kind of the environment and the job itself for the employees. So in your current role today, let's talk a little about what you're doing today, a little bit about the company and kind of understanding what is that mission of that business today in your current role? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Most of my career, I've always been on the brand side. So I've always used and collaborated with outsourcing partners. And my experience with them, some were very good. Uh, most of the time, not very good. And so they always caused me, you know, certain pain points in my operations and stuff. Like I said, they're all good to collaborate with, but you know, there were definitely opportunities that I saw. And so I had an opportunity a couple of years to kind of switch and kind of go to the dark side onto the BPO space. And, you know, I was telling my friends, well, you know, now that I'm here, it's not so dark, right? So being able to kind of take that perspective, being a client, and now on the flip side, now how do I take all those learnings, the things that happened to me with my vendors and make sure that we don't do those things that support you? and and so when we, so when I had the opportunity to really go into the BPO space, it was like right before COVID hit. So I'm like, great. Not only have I jumped over to the BPO space and this whole thing is a pandemic, it was a steep learning curve. And, um, and so that allowed me really the opportunity to see if I can, if I had the right grit and if I had the right resourcefulness and the leadership skills to now take an entire organization and have them survive through COVID. And so that really was kind of the platform that gave me enough confidence to now want to do my own thing. And, you know, I guess in my 20s, it was a, I hope I made just as much as I was old. So if I was 25, I hope I made $25,000 a year. And then 30s, you're a little bit more comfortable. And 40s, you know, we're in a really good position career-wise. And then now in my 50s, I have an opportunity to kind of reflect and saying, okay, well, what am I doing that's more meaningful? And so starting my own company, the meaningfulness and support you is really establishing a company that really was built on the foundation of people and then being able to apply, um, really kind of supply employment opportunities for folks that are, you know, in the underserved populations, marginalized groups, because, you know, oftentimes in corporate organizations, I was the only female leader. And so I didn't, I didn't have a lot of people that kind of looked like me. And then when I was actually in those roles, the leadership roles, I saw a lot of really good, really talented people get overlooked. They were never chosen for projects. They were never given the right mentoring. They were never given opportunities or a voice because they never looked the part. They didn't have the right credentials. They didn't have that executive presence. And, and so that always kind of stuck with me through the years. And so I wanted to be able to create a company where 
anybody that has that desire, the willingness to continue to grow um, and succeed, we're going to provide those opportunities within our organization. You know, you use two words that I use all the time, grit and resourcefulness, right? And you kind of tied it back to that journey of doing this, you know, business, this entrepreneurial journey during a pandemic, right? And we all know from the contact center space, and we'll talk about it later in, in the show around, you know, how that impacted you. So it's great to be able to look and reflect back and say, here was your journey. You went through all this time where you're looking at your personal journey. You're also looking at the journey of being the customer, the enterprise, going into seeing what is it like. And we talk a lot about the concepts of know your customer, right? And you were the customer. So now coming into the outsourcing side, you had very specific things that you felt were painful or uh, friction oriented that you wanted to change. And so in that, in considering the background across the industries that you've worked in and the ones that you serve, are there any universal core truths or things around that um, diversity when it comes down to contact center operations? Yeah, I, I I'm not too sure of if I see kind of any kind of universal themes, but I think really, you know, one of the fundamental things, and, and it seems really super cliche, but I truly believe in it, you know, everything starts and stops with people. And so if you look across the board with these contact centers and across the industries, you know, I often say that the skill sets of running successful contact center is industry agnostic. If you understand people and you're process minded, and you understand technology and kind of how it interplays between the, those other two factors, you're going to be successful in, trying, in finding kind of that right balance at, at, in work. So it's never the best leaders that I've ever come across that I've worked with or I've mentored really has balanced out those three areas. You know, they're really good people leaders. They really understood processes and they understood the technology. So they have to get outside their four walls, learn what's going on. You don't have to be an expert, but know how the technology works and in relationship to kind of your, your overall workload and your workload. It's, it's interesting that you've said technology a couple of times. And even though there's people, which we're in the business of people, right? There's obviously a process for some structure, but it's interesting that you've stated technology a couple of times. And I don't know if that was on purpose for emphasis or not, but I find that a lot of leaders um, don't really emphasize their in particular knowledge of the tech and maybe not necessarily literally how it's built and how it works in its intimate sense, but maybe how it applies and how it's leveraged in the business. So with the experiences that you've talked about around all the different types of people, processes and technologies, is there anything around that has shaped your own personal leadership style? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't know what you don't know. And so starting out kind of career wise and stuff, it was always kind of a trial and error in terms of um, understanding how to best lead and manage and develop people. Right. And then it was processes. Every, every industry you have to learn, you know, it, it, I always kind of, it frustrates me a little bit when I see some of these job postings and stuff, they're like, you know, Oh, healthcare preferred, you know, healthcare experience preferred or utilities experience preferred. Right. And nobody was ever born in any industry. We all had to kind of learn something as we went in. And so there's always a steep learning curve in any industry and in understanding the business itself and the processes. But I also think you have to understand the technology to understand how to best leverage it. 
Because when you're creating kind of your roadmaps, your strategies, if you don't understand that technology and how it impacts your operations, it, it can't be a separate entity. And far too often I've gone to organizations where IT kind of took the lead. IT would dictate what the next technology was. IT would, you know, they thought what they believed would help the contact center. And then you do this huge CapEx project and you put it in place and not much changes or very incremental improvements are realized. And then you look at the executive team, they were hoping massive um, improvements when you kind of put in whatever that, that next best thing is. Well, what's interesting around that example that you gave, that incremental change, your business specifically from uh, early on till now has really had this immense growth. And in that growth, right, there's always going to be change that occurs that has to happen in the business, both from maybe even technology to process people for it not to break, right? For it not to cave in under its own weight. Was there anything in particular that you learned or principles that helped you be successful through that growth and being able to be successful through that growth? Yeah, I I would say, you know, when as you kind of move up in the corporate ladder by title and stuff, it seems like you get more and more removed from operations, right? So m- much less tactical, much more strategic. And sometimes you kind of lose sight of what's really going on for alliance. And so, you know, I always tell people, like, you can only, you can only analyze so many spreadsheets. You can only look at so many numbers. But you have to be able to kind of complement that with what you directly observe. And I'll, I'll give you an example. We were you know, on the recruitment end. Um, and this was in Guatemala City where we were testing applicants for the English skills and we were like churning through so many people uh, just to get like a handful of, of qualified candidates. So finally, I decided to go and do the assessment myself. And, and again, these were testing folks that English was the second language. And for this contact center job, well, I just realized that test was very long and it was extremely hard. Like I failed it. So like, man, I can't even get a job as an agent in my own company, right? And, and so by kind of going through those steps and those exercises, I become a lot more intimately involved in the operations to say, to be able to kind of question everything that's in place. So not only was our recruitment tools and the processes not good, but then you go on to the onboarding process and I would go through whatever that looked like, you know, right when it leads in training. And then I realized, I asked HR, what's our onboard process? What are the types of things that you cover and you talk about in day one? And everything they listed was something horribly negative, right? Here's the attendance policy. Here's this. Don't do this. And here's this. And, it was, and to me, that wasn't a really good image of our company. We want people to be excited about making the right choice to join our organization. And so that needed revamping. And so being able to kind of follow the entire process from, you know, recruitment and screening and interviewing to onboarding, the training itself and getting on the floors and being in production, all of that stuff, you kind of have to walk in their shoes to see what works and what doesn't work. So that's been my biggest learning is like you, you have to go through it yourself and observe to be able to understand what's broken. Running a contact center these days takes a great deal of courage and fortitude. 
Nobel Biz would like to salute the Contact Center community for not giving up and working hard to drive their businesses down the road to success. As the promise keepers of the industry, our goal was to provide one of the most versatile and cost-efficient omni-channel solutions on the market. Nobel Biz Omni Plus is a cloud contact center software that gives instant access to a full range selection of channels, from voice calls, two-way SMS, email, WhatsApp, Twitter, Telegram, among others. Our solution offers complete control over the externalities by switching from an on-premise technology to a cloud-based solution in just a matter of hours. Get integrated compliance support, advanced reporting, seamless agent and supervisor dashboards, and many more performance-enhancing capabilities, all in just one product. Nobel Biz OmniPlus, the future-proof solution for scaling contact center operations. Learn more about Nobel Biz OmniPlus at www.nobelbiz.com. You know, that story, you know, I just I kind of go back through my career and through all the leaders I've worked for and the people that have worked with and under me. And I, I look at a lot of the themes that you gave around this idea that you kind of don't know these things until you see them, you get far removed from things. And I always come back to, it's extremely important for the leadership, right? To be able to go back and be able to go walk amongst everybody, right? And it may be physically or virtually, but the idea that you're really immersed, you're truly present in what's happening. But the other part of me also looks at how do you then also translate that mindset so that your other leaders all the way up through the org also have a piece of that so that they're also doing that, right? Because then you could be in an org where you go back and you're going back and going, well, gosh, I saw this in 10 seconds. How come nobody else saw this, right? Why did it get passed by one, two, three, or even five leaders depending on the size of the organization? And sometimes I attribute that to a disconnect between really understanding your vision of your core value, right? And that core value may be the fact that you have to care for your customer in a certain way. But what does that mean, right? Someone's interpretation of what that means to them may be, we just need to be very strict in the rules and the details. And I have to be overly uh, high in my expectations. And like you said, you failed the test, right? So how do you, as a leader, develop other leaders in your organization as grown so that you're not the only one that has to go back and see all those things. Any insights into what you've learned across your career in that avenue? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, look, if you're a leader and you have control issues, you're not ever going to succeed, right? Because when it's you against 500 FTEs, 1,000 FTEs, 5,000 FTEs, um, it's, it's not sustainable. And so I've always believed the fact that, you know, mentoring and developing has has to happen at the leadership level. So part of it is setting the example and being able to kind of share what I've learned and what I've gone through with the leadership team, but also be able to integrate that into some of their processes, right? If you look at the leader's job, whether they be supervisors or managers, break that down. How much of their, of their work is administrative in nature? How much of it is spent really kind of learning and developing? And then how much of it is really spent just learning? and how to be a better leader. And so every time that I would interact with my leadership team, whether it be a one-on-one meetings or like team meetings, there, there's always an element of learning that I kind of bring back full circle, right? And so you have to be prepared to be able to answer that. And 
I can tell. I can tell when, you know, their answer is very surface level versus they have a deep understanding. And so the more you ingrain kind of that, that approach into your everyday work, into your interactions, into your meetings, then the more they understand that they have to continue to practice it. They have to be inquisitive. They have to want to grow in their position because that job two years ago looks very, very different than what it looks like today. And so part of the adaptability and to be able to survive in this marketplace is really to continue to kind of learn and learn as much as you can, because that's going to make you a much more effective leader on how to best support your folks. That's great. I love it. And I mean, considering that you've really led contact centers that have a presence of over 35 countries, there has to be this cultural nuance that plays a role in each of the different areas. How have you navigated those differences? Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's one of those, something happens that have like an aha moment, right? And so I've, I've always had leadership teams kind of travel with me to partner sites um, across the globe. And, and you're right. You know, there's certain regions that are very good. I would say Philippines, great at customer service, not so great at sales, right? And so every, every region kind of has their, um, has a really kind of their, their core strengths. And so just by going to the locations, opening up the conversation and talking to people at a variety of different levels really kind of made me take a step back into kind of our culturally, how do we approach supporting countries? Because we're, we're a bit ethnocentric here in the U.S., right? It's like, oh, we have training programs, so we're just going to push that out to folks in South Africa, folks in the Philippines, and, and think that the way that we approach training and the materials and the methodologies will universally work across the board. And what I realized as I sat and watched training classes and, and, and did a lot of focus groups and stuff, I realized a lot of those materials didn't translate well, right? Even in my own group, my leadership group, when we would talk and discuss things with, the, with um, that local leadership team, we used a lot of vernaculars and sayings, right? You can kill two birds with one stone. Well, I just saw a lot of glossed over looks, right? It was like, they don't understand what that means. And so it gave me an opportunity to think back, okay, well, then what doesn't resonate in our training? And now we collaborate with a local leadership team to create and revise or, or also some of our training so that it resonates more with that particular region and culture. Yeah, I mean, that's huge. And I think even not in just the training, but also how do you coach and how do you deal with when there's underperformance and having to engage performance reviews and all the kinds of things of how you communicate um, have to come into play. And it's great that you not only saw that, but you also realized that that local approach allowed you to kind of integrate into the best and most efficient ways to get that going. So let's kind of go back to some of the core founding principle parts of your business, right? So support you as a woman and minority owned business. You also have this foundational principle of saying, doing right by every customer, right? So given that mission, doing the right thing. How do you go about ensuring? Because that's a pretty big ask of your saying. Say, hey, I'm always going to do the right thing. Do the right thing. How do you consistently uphold that across all these interactions? And then how has that principle of the business really cultivated 
everything from your partnerships with your clients to your employees, all the way to the communities that you're serving. Right. Absolutely. Well, I think when you say things like, you know, that we're always wanting to do the right thing, it's subjective. And so how do you take something subjective and put a framework around it, right? And, and part of it is empowering our, our employees to make decisions. Because when you look at the context in our past 35 plus years, not, not much has changed operationally, right? And, and we try to create kind of these templates of operations so that you have consistency in your delivery for service and support. But we also kind of shot ourselves in the foot and did it a service because what we did was we dummied down everybody, right? No, Christian, we don't want to hear, you know, your opinions and stuff, but just follow the script. Follow the process, follow the script, right? And then when somebody asks you something, it kind of throws them for a loop and then they don't know what to do. And then what do they do? They ask their supervisors for the answer and then they get the answer and then they move on to the next call. So I think fundamentally, you have to be able to put, and I'm going to start with technology because I do think that's the most important thing, is putting together the right technology stack to be able to provide you with the visibility and the data that you need to be able to give you clues as to, well, what is doing right by the customer mean? And what does that look like? And then be able to take those data points and, and really do kind of a check and balance, right? We're not going to find everything. But as we mold our, what should our QA process look like? What should our uh, process improvement methodology look like? How do we glean information and ensure that we put the right parameters around ensuring that people are empowered to be able to make the right decision, that people do have the right education and training and, and visibility across the board to be able to make those right decisions. So I think there's a lot of, support elements in place from awareness and training and development, followed by the systems to be able to kind of monitor and track that, to now giving that information back to the leadership team and and giving them information in a way that, again, fundamentally touches the principles of what's most important to us as an organization. And do people feel that they have the right information at their fingertips to be able to make that right decision by the customers or whether it be an internal stakeholder or a colleague. So I don't know if I necessarily answered a question, but now you're taking a, a very subjective, vague concept of doing the right thing and putting more structure around what that really should mean. Well, what I take from it when I'm hearing this, right, and the fact that it is subjective is not necessarily a bad thing as long as you know what to do with getting definition around what is subjective in the moment when it's important. So an example of that is you were on the enterprise side, you were the customer, you knew the things that you didn't like. So you're in you coming in, here are some things that as a customer, I would have wanted. But when you really take the ultimate end is like, what outcome are you looking for? And it's not always your outcome. Your outcome may be in that moment. It's, well, I need to have this many sales, this many conversions. I need to have this CSAS score. I need to have this amount of uh, changes to my lifetime value. You know, you have all these metrics that you may say, this is, if I get this amount of this, then that equals good. But in the end, as an outsourcer, right, is you're servicing your customer who ultimately is probably servicing their end. And the right thing for that customer 
may be different than the next customer that you have. And so being able to be aware of that, that difference and nuance exists and how do you actually go about your process and your people and your tech to deliver their version of the next right thing, I think in of itself also pulls from your background and that history of being the customer side. Am I off base on any of that? No, no, I think you're spot on. You know, I, I think a lot of times when we when we kind of look back at our experiences and at what works and what doesn't work, you know, one of the commonalities I also find too is information and communication doesn't necessarily get trickled down to every level. So the learning seems to stop at a certain level. Like I may, you know, mentor and develop my leadership team from supervisors, managers, directors, senior directors. Uh, and then I would just, I would hope in hopes that they now take that information and really kind of approach their teams that way. Right. And it's one of those things, never assume, just always verify and, and making sure that you put those expectations in place and make sure you follow up with the leadership team. But you're absolutely right. It's, it's making sure that, you know, to me, it's hard to say what's, well, it's hard to say what, what the right thing is. But what we do know in any element, whether it be different personalities, different situations, different industries, is that you have to inherently connect with people. Right. And part of that is really listening to make sure that you understand what they're what they're calling in for, or what they need, even in colleagues, why they're interacting with you. What's the point of this particular meeting? What do they want to get out of it? And so that awareness and teaching people to identify that um, it, it takes years of practice, but you, you have to begin with that training, especially at the rep level. They intuitively understand how to interact with people effectively on the phones and be able to kind of connect and give the sense that they, they really understand the situation and they know their jobs, then that right thing will follow. No, I totally agree with that. And talking about the subject of listening to people, right? You're an active speaker. You've done numerous customer service and customer experience conferences. Do you find when you're doing that, that there's any common misconceptions in the industry that you often find yourself having to debunk? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's easier to kind of speak at conferences where you're amongst other contact center um, leaders because they, they already understand the environment, right? But for the folks that aren't as close to it, you know, I, I think some of the misconceptions is like, one, that a call center is not a career. It's just you know, a job that you temporarily have or it's convenient for, you know, when you're in school. And, and so I think people have only kind of seen the, the bad stuff of contact centers, right? How it's like a huge sweatshop, how it's a horrible job, how, you know, it was inflexible and didn't treat people humanely. I mean, you name it, um, it happened. And so by debunking it and saying you can actually make a really good career out of it, and here are some opportunities. So that's one of the kind of the, the biggest myths that I think, it, you know, it just isn't true, but the, we're not doing a good job in terms of getting that word out, that this is another space um, to make a good career. I would say the second piece of it is people tend to think of contact centers as very operational, kind of unnecessary evil, right? I mean, I know all my bosses 
hated spending that much money in contact centers. I often had the largest budget in the company. Um, but now how do you take something that is like a service and support and turn your contact center into a true strategic department and function? And now how do you utilize that to now be a stronger strategic contributor to the rest of the organization? It's not about just answering calls. It's not about just hitting KPIs. Where else in the organization are you going to have access to millions of transactions a month, a year? And all of those data points to now be, be able to kind of glean and do something with that information. You know, it's incredibly powerful to now take that information and feed it to communications or marketing or the tech team um, or wherever, you know, whatever or parts of the organization that you work in conjunction with. And so I don't think we do a good job in terms of identifying our opportunities to be a strong strategic partner kind of in, in, in that space. Yeah, it's interesting. You touched on a couple of topics that were, you know, really hit home both as a consumer, right? That goes and engage world. And I interact with plenty of contact centers and call centers as a consumer, but also on the part of our business and the fact that we work with a lot of contact centers and call centers. And, you know, one of the things was that idea that, that it's not a career, right? And some of that, when I talk to a lot of leaders, it's because the training, coaching, mentoring, and the career path that is clear and, and, and available and encouraged as cultures in a lot of uh, contact centers, it's like, well, we know we're going to have a lot of churn, a lot of turnover, so we're going to treat it that way. Versus how do we create career opportunities? How do we give leadership training and manager managerial training that's not just administrative and operational in nature to people? How do we help develop people so that there is an opportunity for people that work in it to feel that there is not only a path, but there's a way for you to make a difference? On the other end of it, obviously, is the consumer. You come in and you're always remembering the bad stuff, right? Oh, the IVR hell. Oh, the rep that couldn't understand me or, or, or only wanted to read their script or they didn't want to talk to me or just on the outbound side, if someone was maybe calling you, you didn't want the call. You can go across the board of all the things that can be negative, but I find it interesting how businesses many times, whether it's outsourcing or internally, you're right. They look at it as just a cost center. They just say, it's a cost of doing business. So it's just this thing that I don't want to have to spend a lot of money on. But I find it an interesting parallel to the concept of where sometimes we talk about the idea of a sale doesn't begin until after when you need to now deliver on those promises of a product or service that you've given someone, tangible or not, right? And it's not that process you went through up front to get someone to feel confident to buy something from you or to get something from you. It's now that you have to deliver on it. And so when I think of the contact center, it's literally the opportunity of delivering on that promise that we're going to be here for you in the information, the help when you're unhappy, when you want something and being able to do it and meeting you where you are, where you want us to meet you, right? When and how and via whatever mechanism you want us. And so part of that's the contact center, part of that's your website and all the other ways you communicate with people. But when companies really look at it that way, and they take a lot of what you're talking about, which is you were on the brand side and you kind of know those takings, you're able to then see how do you then translate that into the end result, which is how do you leverage tech and process to empower people versus just people are this disposable thing that comes in and out, right? I mean, do you see that as well on your? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, 
you know, we're always prompted to take action when there's something that's going wrong or bad or we don't like it. And, you know, I, I think, and this is, and this is just an observation, but, you know, I think across the board that the model of BPOs really has, has really been, I think there's elements that are like less desirable, right? It, it has become, where do you find the cheapest labor? And it's become labor arbitrage, right? And it gets further and further away of the really kind of the, the business of, of dealing with and, and developing people because it is so short term and it is kind of that instant gratification, right? Because um, I, I need to, I need to decrease my budget. So why not find the, the cheapest locations? And, and so I think when, when you're looking at those types of things, those are the very things that I hated that I want to change and not do within our organization. So I've worked for small to medium sized BPOs. And a lot of times within those organizations, they don't ever invest in any, anything, right? Um, I, I can't even tell you, I hate the look of a spreadsheet. You know, if they, if they use that as a record keeping, I just, I just want to stab my own leg. You know, it's like, there's, there's better and easier ways of doing things. And so I think by starting a company, I've had the luxury of really building it from scratch, but building it the right way. And so when we talk about, you know, customer experience, when we talk about employee experience and starting from inside out, we really use that concept and really approach it that way. So as we're designing a complementary tech stack, what are all the tools and resources that's going to help the employees onboard, do their jobs, do it well, be successful, and help them get onto that next level? So we talk a lot about, you know, frictionless customer experience and making it easy for the customers to do business with our organization. It's the same thing with employees. How do we decrease the friction of how they interact with our organization and our company? And then how do we gear that towards systems that really help them? You know, there can be just like, sure, you can, you can buy whatever you want, but if it doesn't truly help them do their jobs better in a way that they feel is effective, then it just compounds the issue of frustration, right? So, you know, I take an example of training, classroom training. Well, the very next thing after you're done training, you go into nesting. And then once you go into nesting, then you're on the live calls. Well, that feeling feels like you just dropped off a cliff. Because in your last job, you were the expert. You knew a lot of things. You had a good comfort level. Now starting something brand new, you kind of had you know, everything taken away from you. And now you're on unsteady ground. So how do we continue to build that confidence in them? And then by the time they do reach production, they're successful, but it takes complementary tools and resources to make sure that they're successful. A famous African proverb says that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. At Nobel Biz, we have made it our mission to travel far and wide with our partners and clients. As a complete telecom services provider with over 20 years of experience in the industry, Nobel Biz offers the only voice carrier network designed with the sole purpose of serving call centers around the world. This contact center dedicated carrier network provides crystal clear voice traffic, up-to-date compliance tools, intelligent routing, 
and highly secure data protocols combined with 99.9% uptime and easy setup. Our goal for 2022 is to become the ultimate partner and provider for the contact center industry by placing service quality at the top of our priority list. To top it off, at Nobel Biz, we have the most competitive cost per minute model in the industry. Need proof? Reach out to us and learn more about the Nobel Biz Voice Carrier Network at www.nobelbiz.com. Yeah, that lines perfectly with a post that you recently uh, shared. You know, it was the insights from 2023, 2024, the customer contact executive benchmarking report by CMP Research. You know, they were highlighting that focus of creating what you were describing, the fi- frictionless um, customer experience, you know, talent retention, managing technology transitions. And, you know, it had mentioned that three quarters of the executives plan to boost their investments in customer-facing technologies and a lot of the things that you've talked about kind of align with that. Are there any other items that you think uh, really you believe, right, that organizations should strategically invest or approach these investments on outside of what you said, which is really training, making it simple for employees to onboard and do their job? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I and I want to slip on and be on a kind of the, the brand side of things. You know, when I was when I was shopping around for BPOs, and we always stuck with kind of the larger players because they had a global footprint. You know, they were always their their big selling point was, yeah, you should come with us because we have look at all these bells and whistles. You know, we have this technology, we have that technology, we have this, and it was it was good to know. But now the onus felt back on me as a buyer to say, okay, well, where would this fit all fit in within my operations? Right. And, and to me, that wasn't a big differentiator because anybody can go out and buy the next greatest, shiniest tool and resource. And what was more important to me is. If you look at it, not not a lot of people invest their technologies in terms of being helpful to the employees. It's always, well, we don't really need that technology because, you know, like on the BBO site, we don't need that technology because the clients are going to supply it. And oftentimes when you look on the BPO side, especially like small to medium-sized players, they don't really inherently have any tools or solutions internally. You know, I, I've seen organizations develop, you know, information that should be in a knowledge base. They plug it into OneNote or they plug it into a spreadsheet and just do a control find type of thing, right? And, and really kind of sitting down and understanding kind of what are some of the inherent challenges that agents face on the front lines, you'll be able to see the things that they have problems with. So a client can come to us and have 10 different systems that our agents need to break off of, right? So how do we streamline that? I can't do anything on the client side, but I sure as heck can do things internally to kind of help simplify the maneuverability and the ability to find information quickly, right? And so I, I think it, it also kind of couples with what are you willing to invest in as a company and that technology and that technology stack that we develop, we first use it ourselves to be able to make our people and our operations stronger. And I think that's the biggest difference, that we're willing to make that investment up front to start with, you know, again, going back to our main focus is making sure that our people are successful and they have the right visibility and the right tool and resources to do their job successfully. Yeah, and I think what's interesting as a, a pivot in the conversation that we had at the beginning, when we talked about the pandemic, right, is that 
what you were doing with all of the tech stack, like what you were doing with your processes, the way you were training and onboarding, everything really then got impacted when the pandemic hit, right? So it really transformed a lot of businesses we've talked to on how they approached a lot of these topics. So in the contact center space, we've heard a lot of the journeys people had. So from your vantage point, from what you were going through, we discussed a little bit earlier, what were the big shifts that you just saw as industry when that hit? But then also from you and your personal experience in the business you were in, what did you do to navigate that change in that moment? Yeah. You know, I, I would say outside of like the initial panic, you know, it always helps to have a really strong leadership team around you so we can kind of get together and really collaborate on, you know, what does that, what does that plan need to look like? And so being smaller, being a pretty flat organization, we're pretty nimble so we can react pretty darn quickly, right? And so one of the biggest things that we learned is having operations in other countries they don't necessarily have have extended their infrastructure, the telecom infrastructure, beyond kind of the, the metro cities, right? But not everybody lives within the metro cities. So one of our biggest learnings was we just kind of take for granted that everybody has internet, right? And so that was our biggest learning, which is there was a lot of people that kind of lived in these rural areas that, that weren't necessarily equipped to be able to kind of help us push them to a work-at-home model. So what did we have to do as an organization? Quickly work with, you know, the local telecom company to be able to kind of quickly get those, get the systems in place, to get the technology and the bandwidth in place to be able to do the jobs. That, that was the biggest learning. It's like, so, okay, so things that we took for granted isn't the case in certain countries. I think the second piece that we took for granted is that you take all the operating models and the concepts and the practices that we did in brick and mortar and that would easily translate into a virtual environment. And that absolutely is not true. You know, and so I'm sure a lot of my colleagues feel the same way. It's like, wow, okay. Well, it's not just a touch base, you know, once a week with the employees. When you work in a virtual environment, you have to make the invisible visible. And that means being more diligent and having greater touch points with your teams to know what's going on. Because you don't have that ability to just walk up to them or just observe what's going down, you know, what's, what's happening within your, your bayer of stations. So I think those are like the two biggest learnings that we had as we transitioned to um, adapting in this kind of COVID environment. You know, yeah, those were very common themes when we talked to other leaders in a similar environment. And what's interesting about your particular, you know, company principle of really doing right by the customer, I'm sure your customers had a lot of demands or concerns or saying like, how are you going to make sure everyone can go home and they're good? So was there anything specific that you're still doing today that you learned as that change happened now that, you know, you have people remote or is everyone back brick and mortar? Can you kind of give the dynamic of from that moment of that dramatic change to what does it look like today and what, what works and does, didn't work that you've moved forward? Yeah, I, I would say when we move remote, I mean, I think critical to transitioning our, our operations from brick and mortar to at home is the, the piece of communication, right? You have to be able to communicate to your, to your staff and your teams what's going on that assure them that the company is doing fine and what's next beyond this whole work at home thing, what to expect. And then you have to kind of flow that communication to the client side as well. 
here's the things that we're we're doing, you know, be reassured that we're, we're not going to have any interruptions in service or whatever it is. And and also communicate and the types of things that we're doing. And again, I'm not going to say that we did things perfectly. You know, we learned a lot along the way, but we were able to also course correct pretty quickly as well. And so there were there were things that we did that were remarkably good. And there's things that we just fell flat on our face. And, and so some of the learnings for that is that we continue to kind of work on today is we continue to kind of fine tune how supervisors and managers need to kind of tailor their approach to, to managing people for work at home. But one of the key things that we learned coming out of COVID, and I'm so glad that it happened, is the ability for remote work to really be successful. You know, I came from organizations where my leadership team was spread all over the globe. And I was one of the very few departments that actually had a very dispersed um, team. And we were able to really kind of prove out that it doesn't matter where you're located. If you do the right things in place and have constant communication and, and provide them with the right information and awareness and education, that you can be just as effective remotely as you are in brick and mortar. And so oftentimes when my global leadership team would get together, people often assumed or thought that we all worked in the same building because we were just all in sync and we knew what was going on and we worked well. We're very complimentary to one another. And that's, you know, the best compliment anybody could have given me because that means that we're, we're well on our way to kind of doing the right thing. And so that also translates into now extending that approach and that success to the rest of our employee base. So I'm not to say that, I'm not here to say that remote work or work at home is the answer because there's definitely personality types that they do a phenomenal job at home. And then there are other personality types, they just need human interaction. And so they, they prefer a brick and mortar, right? And so now it's juggling the balance of how can we now create kind of a hybrid situation because it takes twice as many resources to be able to kind of balance those two out. But really giving kind of the flexibility to the employees on what's going to work best for them and what's going to work best for their, for their lifestyle. Because what, what we've learned over time is it's not that people want or like remote work. It wasn't that. It was they were wanting more flexibility in their jobs because they all have lives to lead. And when we're focused on hiring underserved minority, single parents, military, you name it, college students, you know, they just have unique challenges within their lifestyle, whether it be, you know, dropping off, picking up kids or having to care for an elderly parent um, or you just don't have a partner to help you. And so by rethinking the way we approach our workforce management has allowed for greater flexibility for our employees, but we also empower them to kind of make those decisions. And I'll give you a specific example. All across the board, workforce management has always dictated, here are the schedules. It's full-time, very few times it's part-time, right? Everything's full-time. And I always thought, well, it just can't be because there's, there's points where it's a horrible way of optimizing your resources and it doesn't help anybody because you have gaps of time where you're just way overstaffed. So how do we break this into incremental pieces that are more manageable? 
And so part of that, the way we approach workforce management, if you want a full-time job and you want a study schedule, we provide that. But if you want some additional flexibility, then we just put parameters in terms of if you want to be part-time, you have to work X amount of hours. And on our particular platform, we break schedules out into two-hour increments. So they can pick shifts that's going to work best within their day. And then the hours that we really need greater coverage, we put a premium on them. And so now the employee is empowered to make the decision of where and how they want to work. And then they also have to really kind of collaborate amongst the larger collective to saying, okay, if I give up a shift, somebody else needs to pick it up. And now you get visibility to the entire staff of what we're dealing with and how we really kind of promote that teamwork environment and how are we going to get everything covered for the client. Yeah, it creates definitely a much more collaborative environment, both in not only communication shifts and, you know, being able to meet the staffing needs, not only physically where they're at, right? You can ta- tackle a larger pool of people that wouldn't ever work in a brick and mortar, but they are willing to work remote, right? And they may also have unique needs in scheduling or how they approach their work. And for the same time, those that need to have the water cooler talk, they need to have the look over the shoulder next to their peer and ask a question or whatever it may be where they have to be in person. But you talk about that collaboration also in the technology that allows and encourages the process of more touches uh, proactively, knowing that it's needed because you don't have the ability in the remote world the same way you do when you're in a physical place. And so what's interesting about that dynamic is you're right, the hybrid approach seems to be you know, pendulum was one way, it's all brick and mortar, then it's all remote. And then now it seems to be kind of finding some balance depending on the business where um, there is some percentage that's remote, some that's brick and mortar, or some that, you know, um, will come in, they're hybrid, they'll, they're partially remote, partially brick and mortar, they'll come in a couple days every once in a while. And then you even see the people where they'll say, hey, you all start brick and mortar at a certain level. And when you perform to a certain level, then you get the option if you want it as work from home, right? It's kind of like a prize for them to get. So everyone seems to be really finding creative ways to embrace the concept of working from home. So that's already a, a great piece that you can add to all the things we've had from our other guests. And so I want to switch it to a, another topic real quick, a little bit more about you specifically. So um, you really have received some amazing accolades, one of them being, right, the 2021 Silver Globe Award for Executive Excellence. You've also been named as one of the top 10 businesswomen to admire in 2021. How do these recognitions influence or even shape how you do things in your future endeavors, if at all? Yeah. You know, I would say, you know, many of these awards are often kind of judged by your peer group. And so it's always interesting. It, I use it as you know a bit of a kind of sounding board. Not that I necessarily go into these um, submissions or these you know recognitions and stuff as um, a competition, but I see it more as kind of validation, validation that we're doing the right things, validation that we're being forward thinking and innovative in comparison to you know our other colleagues, because we're all trying to figure out kind of roughly the same same things, right? And we're all challenged with very similar things. But I think recognition in terms of those particular awards, it's, it's one, validating because it's being recognized by, you know, our industry or our colleagues. But I also find that, you know, I love these things because then 
you take the awards and you turn it internally to be able to showcase to your, you know, to your teams the pride that you have with them and their accomplishments. Because let's face it, outside of internal awards and recognitions, you know, employee of the year, the person that was the most productive, most improved and all that stuff, it's, it's all within the four walls of that company. So now you get out of that company, there's a much bigger world out there. And if you're competing against all different brands across all verticals and you still come up on top, then that's a, that's a great element to kind of flow back into your organization and share in terms of your successes and pride in the operations. And it just gives you the desire to kind of want to do more and, and really kind of continue to push that envelope and get people out of their comfort zone. It's great that it's really a translation of the collective effort and output that everybody as a team generates, right? So you can go back and share that doing the right thing, right, as part of your mission um, really benefits everybody, right? They're, they're, it's seen and it um, allows you all to appreciate the fact that you are doing something and it's being recognized externally, which is great. Now, with that though, right, all that hard work, all that effort, growing the business, managing global operations, speaking engagements. I understand you're a mother of five. There's a lot going on there. How do you balance the professional and personal? You know, I'm never going to win parent of the year. I'll just tell you that up front. And I, and I think it's, you know, it's always hard to kind of figure all that stuff out. But I always, you know, I always think back to one, you know, I am an incredibly supportive spouse. And so we, we split things 50-50. So not any one onus is on one parent to do all the child ring or one parent to always, you know, take them to the doctor's appointments and dentist appointments and stuff. And so we've really found a really good balance in terms of both of our careers. We have, you know, we both have, we're both in leadership, um, kind of give and take. So not either, you know, neither of us travel at the same time. We always kind of coordinate schedules. So then a parent is always home with the kids. You know, there are times where I wait till the kids go to bed and then I'll finish up my work and just being kind of creative in, in how you can balance things. But, you know, more importantly, I tell people if it's something that's important, then you'll make it work. And so, you know, I often hear people, I was like, oh, you know, we're thinking about having kids, but we want to make sure it's the right time. Well, it's never the right time. It's, you know, just when you think it's the right, it's never the right time. And so you just kind of have to just start and just do it. And then whatever you encounter, some adversities or some obstacles and stuff, then that's just one more thing you just kind of have to get past. And so being able to balance out what's going to be the most important and prioritizing things in your life, you know, we all have the same 24 hours a day. And so it really depends on what you want to spend the 24 hours on. And then how do you allocate that time into what's most important and what's important today may not be as important tomorrow or next week or next month. But if you have the desire to succeed and to balance things out and it's important to you, you'll make it happen. Well, I think you, you said something really important in that make it happen. Just start. You, 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 you can't just talk about it. You have to execute on it, right? A lot of great ideas, a lot of things people want to do that just never happen because you just didn't do anything. And it sounds easy to say, super hard to do if you don't put those priorities, not only in order when you need to do it, but you find a way to make it happen. You make it a priority. And so with that, you know, a lot of the learnings that we all have in our personal and professional lives, 
many of us get them from books. And with that in mind, do you have any book recommendations that have really significantly impacted your life or your career that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, I, you know, I would say I, this last December, I finally finished something that was a big monkey on my back, which is I was always in and out of my, my PhD program, my doctoral program. So not only do I have all the careers and the kids and all this stuff, why don't I just pile on a doctoral degree, right? And so my husband at the time, yeah, why not? Why not? And so my husband thought I was insane. And he's like, why do you, do you need a doctoral degree in your position? I'm like, I don't think I even need a bachelor's degree, right? But it was just more of this, this is something that I personally wanted to do. So long story short, I just, I, I've spent the last several years, probably the last six years, you know, specifically working on schooling. So I'm a horribly boring person. I don't have much of a social life. I don't read anything outside of academic papers and stuff. And so um, now that I have a bit more time kind of do things that I want, um, you know, I always think back into, well, you know, what are some of those pivotal books? And, you know, way back when um, Emotional Intelligence 2.0 came out, right, um, by Bradbury. What's good about that book is, one, it has that assessment piece of it. So we're going to show you exactly where you, where you can ally on it. The concepts and the principles seem simple. Like, oh, well, they didn't tell me anything that I, you know, didn't already know. But I think between the assessment, I often use that book with my leadership team and even my employees to now come full circle in terms of their development, right? To be able to now take concepts and theories and be able to directly apply it to the workplace and show them how how important emotional intelligence is within the workplace in certain situations and how it's going to allow you to be successful. So I think that's one of the books that is like the most memorable, but I also look at kind of life lessons and I always, I always tend to kind of draw upon those and, and really can share that with, with others, you know, and I'll, I would say way back when being part of conservative Asian parents, they wanted me to be a doctor, engineer, lawyer, right? That was the path. So I was clearly on the path to be, to be a doctor. I was in pre-med. I was well on my way to, to medical school. And at the time, my husband and I lived in San Diego. We just, uh, we just had our first son and it was time for me to apply for med school. And I knew wherever I would go, basically it was wherever would accept me. And then we'd have to relocate. And I wasn't willing to relocate my husband and my child at the time because at the time my, my husband was the breadwinner. And so it was the first time that I gave up on something that I felt passionate about because I was fearful of not being able to succeed. And so it's those regrets that we have in life, right? And so I take those learnings and move it forward to where I vow to myself, I will never have any more regrets in my life. Things that I want to do may be totally out left field, hugely risky, but if I put the right pieces in place and, and calculate the risk, I'm just going to do what feels right. I'm going to do what's going to, that feels most important to me. And, and so going back to your question in terms of, you know, books and learnings and stuff, I surround myself by like-minded people. I read a lot of things in terms of what, how, 
or what makes entrepreneurial successful. I don't know if I'm entirely an entrepreneur, but I do know that I want to make a difference in how call centers are operated and how call centers are established. And more importantly, how we have relationships and how we do the work with clients. Because being on the other side, my brand was horribly important to me. And, and I think as we extend our operations to like BPO partners, it is so critical that those partnerships really understand how important the business is to you. And so if, if my brand isn't taken care of on the other end and they just feel like they're just performing and satisfied the KPIs and they're not the right partners. And so now I take those learnings, flip it to the other side of the BPO world, and I am very protective of all of our clients' friends because I, I know what it feels. And we had to continue to do things that um, solicit trust and performance are table stakes, but they have to trust us to be able to take care of their brand. So those are like, you know, a lot of kind of, every single way I'm learning, I'm learning something new every single day. Um, you never stop learning. Um, but more importantly, taking those learnings, practicing it, if you make a mistake, can of course correct. So I don't know if I'm learning wiser. I just have made a lot of mistakes that I've been able to learn from. <laughs> well, I think it's a great way to wrap up the show, right? I think there was nothing else I can add to that. It was great to have you on. It was a pleasure speaking with you. There's going to be people that want to get a hold of you or they want to get more information about support you. Can you give some information on how people can get a hold of you or get in touch with support you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm on LinkedIn, so anybody can look me up. And so I'm happy to connect and build out my network. And for more information about support you, you can visit uh, supportusolutions.com. And they can find out anything they want to know about the company. Perfect. So look, for all of you who want to connect with Dr. Way, want to be able to learn more about Support You, please go ahead and do so. We love the insights. We love the feedback. And obviously, for those that enjoyed it, like and comment. For those that stood here and enjoyed the commentary, look, we appreciate you joining us. That's another episode of First Contact Stories of the Call Center. Until next time. Thank you for joining me in this episode. If you're loving the content, make sure to hit that subscribe button on your YouTube channel for exclusive clips, webinars, workshops, and bonus materials. And if you're an Apple iTunes listener, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review to help spread the word. On our YouTube page, you can also leave us feedback, comments, and suggest future guests that you'd like to hear from. For even more valuable insights and information on the call center world, visit NobelBiz.com and access our on-demand webinars. I'm Christian Montez, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of First Contact Podcast. Stay with us for the next exciting chapter.